0: Uh, Thank you. This is the reading of the worm word, Psalms 8. Uh, To the choir master, according to the um, of Psalms of David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And when I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is a man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him the glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep, all oxen, and also the beasts of the field the birds of heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name and all the the earth. This is the word of the Lord.
1: I'm so excited to be back in the pulpit after like six weeks. This text has just been refreshing to my soul and I'm eager to bring it to you today. So if you haven't yet turned to Psalm chapter eight, And we're gonna dive into what it means to be human under the lordship of Christ taking dominion over the earth. Before we begin, let's bow our heads in submission to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have gathered us here to show us more of Christ to display more of your majesty to us, to reveal to us your authority, to teach us from your word and to humble us under your greatness. And I pray that as we are humbled, you would pick us back up and set us where you want us to display more of your glory in all the earth. God, we pray this morning for those who, who aren't gathering with us. All of our brothers and sisters, some are just resting after having new babies. Some are out celebrating their anniversaries. Some are working. Some are on family vacations. We, we miss them and ask that you would bless them even in, our, in, in their absence. And you would ret- return them to fellowship with us more refreshed and in awe of your majesty. Help us look to your majesty now through your word and your spirit at work in each other, bring this word to life. Amen. As a teenager, I was a really awkward, shy young man who lacked confidence in in my own identity and purpose. I didn't get along with a whole lot of the cool kids. I wasn't great at much of anything. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And my family wasn't a Christian family. So these ideas about, big ideas about God and his work and his mission were not regular parts of our conversation. But I still had this feeling that there was something far bigger that I was supposed to be connected to out there. And I felt it most when I went outside and looked up. Something about the stars just called out to me. One of my favorite things to do when I was a kid would be to hop on my bike late at night on some cool October evening and ride a couple miles down the road to a high hill and lay in the ditch and just stare up at the stars for an hour. And as I lay there trying to count the millions of stars and noticing shapes among them, and then once in a while seeing one fall across the sky, it just captured my imagination. It had this strange paradoxical effect on my soul, both humbling and encouraging. It made me feel much smaller than I already felt. Millions of galaxies and containing millions of stars each, separated by millions and billions of miles, each of those stars much bigger than even our own sun, and all of it just hanging there in its immensity right over our heads. But as I gained, gazed upward, feeling smaller and smaller, it also seemed to pull me up into it. It inspired me and strengthened me as it called me to find my place in this world. And I think that's by God's design. God made us to feel small, tiny compared to his heavens, but yet to let that comparison shape us for the role we are called to play here on earth. Now we we need to be careful here. You can't find God's will for your life by staring at the stars or gazing at a waterfall. You need more than just general revelation of nature. You need his word. This general revelation experience could lead to despair as you think that's all there is and I'm too small. Or it can lead to idolatry where you start to worship the creation rather than the creator. We need his word to put us in our right place. And that's what our psalm is going to do today. It shows us how creation and the word fit together to call us to embrace your dominion role for the majesty of God. This psalm balances the reality of our smallness compared to God with our great role in creation for the glory of God. So just like gazing up into the heavens, Psalm 8 is both humbling and motivating as we gaze into God's Word, revealing His plan for us. So I'm going to break it up into three parts as seen in your bulletin. In verses 1 through 3, we're going to look upward in order to look upon God's heavenly realm and feel small compared to Him. God displays his glory and power from on high. And then in verses 4 to 6, it explains man's place beneath God. We find our role first by being humbled under his majesty. And then we transition to rise to a unique responsibility that has its own glory and honor. And then finally, verses 7 through 9 describe the extent and purpose of man's earthly domain. God has given us this world to rule in a way that magnifies his glory in every corner of the earth. So let's dive into the text together and get caught up into God's greater purposes for us. Verses one through three, starting with the title. To the choir master, according to the Getith, a psalm of David... middle of the sentence place to stop, but I want to focus mostly on God and his heavens here first. Verse one begins with God on his throne over everything. O Lord, our Lord, our King, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You can see that word Lord twice, but it's actually two different words in Hebrew. The first one, all caps, represents Yahweh, God's name, that personal name of Israel's covenant God. It's the name God revealed to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3, meaning the self-existent one. The name that, that Israel's to remember God by, that he rescued us, his works and his promises towards us. The name that represents his character as we read in Psalm 145. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the God who is Israel's Lord, their king, their master. He has authority to speak and expect immediate, joyful, complete obedience He rules their lives. It's a reminder that none of us is our own master. We all submit to somebody, but it's an invitation to submit to Yahweh, whose rule is life-giving. He's not just Israel's God, though. We don't say that, we can't say That Yahweh is Israel's God, just like Chemosh is Moab's God, and Dagon is the Philistine God, and Baal is the Syrian God, and Molech is the Canaanite God. Mammon and Aphrodite are the American gods. This psalm declares all of them to be false gods. And Yahweh is the one true God in all the earth. His glory is above the heavens, He's above anything that anyone might think is a god. He destroys all of them. He commands angels and demons. He rules over the mightiest kings and presidents on earth. His purposes will not be thwarted by any of them. But his might isn't only on display, just in the big, powerful displays of cosmic spiritual battles. He wins his victories Through weak, helpless beings like little babies, infants. Verse 2 says, Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength. Established strength specifically can mean he created a bulwark, an impenetrable fortress against his foes through the tiniest of people. He defeats his enemies. No matter what your foe is, Whatever ails you, whatever confronts you, threatens you, God can rescue you even from the smallest thing that you would never expect. Now notice here in verse 2, the switch in number between foes, plural, and the enemy, the avenger, singular. Behind every foe you face is the enemy, that old deceiver from the garden in Genesis 3, constantly at work trying to thwart God's plans. At one point, it did seem he gained the upper hand and put humanity under his feet by tricking Adam and Eve, but God made a special promise in Genesis 3.15. He promised that the offspring of the woman was going to crush the head of the serpent. Or in our language in Psalm 8, God is going to use a baby to defeat the enemy. And so, with that promise, Adam and Eve get up off their faces out of their shame and they make a baby. Adam names his wife Eve, meaning the the mother of all living. Life is going to come through her. This is why children have always been considered a blessing throughout the Old Testament, throughout Scripture, because every time a baby is born, it's a declaration that Satan has not won. Life will continue. So mothers, don't ever let the world convince you that all you do is feed babies and raise children as though it's some kind of demeaning work. It's a powerful cosmic proclamation of God's power against Satan's evil schemes. You don't need positions of authority and influence to be mighty in God's work. The promise here is that God uses babies to accomplish his purposes. His hand is involved in every detail of this world, of every detail of life. Notice in verse 3, how the heavens are the work of God's fingers. You'd think that he would say, hands, the right hand of God is powerful. That's what creates things. But he says, fingers, because his majesty is on display through his beautiful precision as well. You may feel like, Your life is nothing, but God knitted you together in your mother's womb with his fingers. He conducts the harmonious song of the heavens to his praise by his fingers. He weaves creation together like a beautiful tapestry with his fingers. He carves your life like a master sculptor taking a a block of exquisite marble using his fingers. All these things, verse 3 tells us, God set in place. He determined beautiful order and purpose to it all. Sometimes it can be hard to see. Satan's always trying to deceive us and trick us. But this is the truth we face when we gaze into the heavens and we dive into God's word. God established a right order to the world. He has decreed from his throne above the heavens how things ought to be. And we don't have the option to argue with him. Our responsibility is to submit under it. This is what happens in verses 4 to 6, showing us man's place beneath. Pick up back in verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor You've given him dominion over the work, works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So David is moving in his song now after reflecting on God to thinking of his own, his own nature in comparison to God in his heavens. This incredible, caring, mighty, and majestic God. This first word in verse 4 for man is emphasizing the weakness and frailty of people. Why would he show any interest in us? We're pathetic. The word mindful is remember. It's the same word that is used in Genesis 6 when God says that he's going to destroy the whole earth in a judgment of a flood because of our wickedness. But he remembered Noah and saved him. Why? What's so great about Noah? Nothing. That's where David is sitting. Why is he doing this for us? And he wonders why God would give any special provision or protection to the Son of Man. Often throughout the Old Testament, that phrase, Son of Man, simply means someone who's descended from Adam, whose name literally means dust. So why would God care about descendants of dirt? We are sinful people of the dirt, yet God keeps providing life and beauty and hope. Why? Why? Because he's got a purpose in all of it, we'll see in verse 5. All of this is a reminder that just because Adam fell, just because we have sinned in our lives, doesn't mean our purpose, our value is completely wiped out. To be sure, sin does corrupt us. It taints us. And we deserve judgment but there's still a remnant of our original design left in us that still proclaims God's majesty in all the earth. That is why God pays attention to us, because he wants to redeem that image, that original design. Well, what is that design? Verse 5 tells us God has made humanity a little lower than the heavenly beings. A little lower than God, a little lower than angels. Not sure what that means specifically, but it means that we are crowned with glory and honor in the earth. Think back to Genesis 1. God made this beautiful creation, intricate, massive, and he made humanity as the crowning glory of it all. We're a special creation made in God's image made to reflect His majesty to one another in our relationships with one another, in our life-giving communication with one another, in our thoughtful reasoning in this world. People should look at us and see just a glimmer of God's glory. This is the highest honor on earth, nearly heavenly, Humanity has been placed in this spot right between the heavens and the earth to be a connecting point between them both. The Garden of Eden was to be an overlap of heaven and earth where they touched and they were kept in proper order by Adam and Eve ruling over it, as verse 6 says, having dominion over it. All of the world designed to be in subjection to humanity. We rule over the earth around us as a reflection of God's rule over all things. But keeping in mind the first part of the psalm, you can't rule over the earth, you can't rise to this important role until you first humble yourself under God's rule himself. You can't order this creation under yourself until you order yourself under the Creator then your role is to get to work. Take dominion. Take a piece of land and make it fruitful. Take a wife and make a family. Take a community and make it flourish. Invest in it. Authority is not bad. It's not domineering authoritarianism. Authority is doing what God commanded Adam in the garden. Work it. Keep it. Bring life into it and protect that life so it lasts beyond you. Verses seven through nine will then explain man's earthly domain, the extent of our authority under God. He says, Our authority extends to all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name! in all the earth. So David is not here giving an exhaustive detailed list of the only things we have authority over. He's a poet. He's writing a song. Verses 7 and 8 are a poetic way of describing all the things, all the earth, by again recalling Genesis 1. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And then he explains how he made the earth as the place of man's dominion. He made seas and separated the sky from the sea and put fish in the sea and birds in the air. And then out of the water, he pulled up land and put animals on there. And then he steps back from that all three of those spheres and he makes a man and says, rule these things, bring life out of these things. This is the order humankind is to maintain. But whenever the Bible lists these things in any other order, oftentimes upside-down order, it highlights how everything has gotten out of whack because of the first part of the psalm got off. Idolatry. We have a tendency to worship all the wrong gods, and when we do, then we manipulate creation only for our own benefit. Idolatry reverses the created order. Moses explains this in Deuteronomy chapter 4. He says, When the people who were made in God's image instead make their own images, statues, out of other people or animals, they flip creation out of order. They worship things below instead of the one who is above them. And then they try to manipulate God instead of manipulating the creation. Paul also starts his theological treatise to the Romans, saying the same thing. In our sinful nature, we exchange the glory of the Creator for the worship of creation. And that results in disordered sexual passions, which then results in the destruction of society. What we do with creation reveals who our God is. Christians ought to care for the environment not because it is God, or not because humanity is some kind of cancer to nature. That's what the secular climate alarmists believe in their creation cult. Their God is themselves. And they, uh, they use their power through the government to destroy the thing that they've been told to have authority over. Or their God is nature itself. They reverse the order of creation and it destroys life as God designed. They, they mutilate children. They abort babies. They sacrifice the well-being of families and economies for the sake of the planet. But man was made to rule the planet. The planet was made to serve f- the flourishing of mankind. The planet will flourish, when, in, including humanity, when man rules subordinate to God. We were all made to take this stuff of earth all around us and fashion it for future generations to prosper. So we ought not have farming practices or construction methods or economic policies that pillage the world around us for our own benefit and leave a wasteland for our future generations. We must remember, we must surrender to God's order Find partners for his work and get busy subduing the earth to bring multi-generational life into every part of the earth so that every corner will sing, verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How incredible is it that our God gave us that responsibility that should lead you to sing those verses over and over again. The problem is that we can't do it. Ever since the beginning, we have failed miserably and repeatedly at these tasks. We're like the book of Judges there's no king in the land, and everyone does what's right in his own eyes. We don't submit to God as king, we don't rule ourselves as righteous kings and queens. Ever since Adam and Eve, we've lost the ability to subdue creation according to God's order, an order that produces life, because our own hearts aren't submitted to his order. But the psalm hints out, one who is to come, who will restore humanity, who will turn things to right order, and he will make man's dominion righteous again. The New Testament alludes to and quotes this psalm regularly to show us how it is fulfilled in Christ. You think of Philippians 2. Jesus, though he was in the form of God's own majesty, humbled himself and took on the form of a son of man. So Matthew tells us the story of Jesus, who was born as a baby. To save his people from their sins. Luke ties that birth story all the way back to the promises given to Adam and Eve. He is the son of Adam and Eve. We saw a few months ago in John chapter 9. Jesus is the creator who with his fingers used dirt to give sight to a blind man. He commands the seas and the fish of the sea with his own voice. He calls himself the son of man, the one who is to rise and be the one on the throne next to God ruling over the earth. Hebrews 2 gives us most clarity. Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus submitted himself a little lower than the angels for a time in order to enter into our cursed world. Our upside down world and flip it around, turn it up, right side up, so that there would be a righteous, perfect Son of Man on the throne forever ruling over creation. But then we see instead of a crown of glory and honor on his head, our world puts a crown of thorns, of sin and shame on his head. And he dies on a cross, making it look like death and the enemy had put it under his feet, under its feet. Put him under its feet. But he wouldn't stay there. Three days later, he rose from that grave, defeating death, putting Satan back under his feet, crushing the enemy forever. So Paul says in Ephesians 1 that in his resurrection, all things were given to him to put under his feet. He has been exalted and given the name that is above every name, the name that is majestic in all the earth. He now rules over everything. There is no such thing as a divide between private religion and secular work. Abraham Kuyper famously declared, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine! That is mine! One day, Paul says, In 1 Corinthians 15, that soon everything will be finally fully arranged in order under his feet. We will have resurrected bodies, perfectly renewed spirits that will finally be be able to rule over the earth, free from the curse. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But we also see this psalm, if we read it again, in light of the church, That this isn't something that we are just sitting around passively waiting for Jesus to come do, but he's actively doing it through his people. It's to be done as part of our witness of his authority to the world right now. So we can look at this psalm and see where he quotes it related to the church. Jesus quotes verse 2 in Matthew 21, verse 16, in his triumphal entry, to say that those who come to him In their weakness, like needy babies and infants, we are the young children born into a new creation. We're the new ruling humanity under his dominion. We become sons and daughters of the second Adam made to multiply this glorious dominion throughout the earth. And he's he's given a little bit of authority to different spheres of this world. He's given governments just a little bit of authority, to judge right and wrong, but he's also given much authority to the church and to homes and we are to hold the government accountable to say, no, you don't have the authority to do that and Christ rules over you, you need to repent, knock that off, you're stifling life. Most of his authority he gives to the church and to husbands and parents in the home which are to be an example and declaration to the rest of the world what life under the authority of Christ looks like. So this gives us a pattern for how we are to order our lives under God's majesty so that we can rule well on the earth. So we start, just as the psalm did, gathering together weekly to worship Him to lift our eyes, to sing to him, that we would submit ourselves under his authority, like gazing into the stars to be made to feel small. And then we are lifted up again through the gospel to leave here and go extend that dominion that he declares here into our own homes. We partner with a spouse to create life and build a family. And then from there, we scatter out And extend his dominion into our workplaces and whatever other wild frontiers that have yet to be subdued for his glory. So that one day, all of our homes and all of the businesses, all of Rochester and all of the world will praise the majesty of Christ our Lord. But as it was from the beginning, Satan is not just going to give up and let us do so. It's going to be a battle. The enemy will rage and build up resistance until Christ returns when he will cast Satan forever into the abyss. But Jesus promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, the authority that he's given to us to spread his majesty. And if we're going to do that, we need to order our own lives first. And the first responsibility is taking dominion over ourselves. We must become self-ruled by Christ's spirit in us. We must slay our pride, kill the dragon of lust, surrender our desires to his mission. So many people want to go out and save the world and their own families are a mess. Their own home life is a mess. Their own soul is a mess. But look at the power he provides for us. Jesus' blood cleanses you makes you righteous and then he gives you his eternal spirit that created the world hebrews 1 verse 14 says that in christ angels are now ministering spirits that you can call to your side you never need to feel like i can't do it you never need to give up thinking that what he's called you to is impossible or i'm just going to be stuck with this thing forever you can call angels to your side to help you find victory, to overcome sin and fear and temptation. And then you can get to work from there building up other areas to turn into gardens of life for his glory. One example that I was inspired by this week is the story of the Texas Rangers pitcher, Jacob deGrom. You might not all be Uh, baseball fans. But the story is incredible. He went to a little Christian high school in Florida, and then he went to a little Christian college in Florida, fairly unknown, but he disciplined himself to become an excellent baseball player. And he was drafted into the major leagues, and twice he won the Cy Young Award. That is the best pitcher in the league. Two years. Now that's Pretty impressive self-rule, but that's not quite what we're aiming at. But look what it provided the opportunity to do. There's more to the story. Last year, because of his great skill, the Texas Rangers valued him highly and signed him to a contract for $185 million. And now he pitches for this team that people recently have realized is the only team who has yet to have a pride night in this June so-called pride month. And they're calling out the Texas Rangers, why aren't you having a pride month? Why aren't you having a pride night? Well, it turns out that Jacob wrote into his contract that as long as he is on the payroll, the Texas Rangers will not celebrate gay pride. That is an example of self-rule impacting Dominion, bringing other areas of this world under the dominion of Christ. Which garden is he calling you to go into and put under his authority? One place that we are given a crown to rule in is right here in a church family. All of our dominion starts right here. It's received from Jesus and then we're called to build this place up and defend it. Leaders are promised in 1 Peter Peter 5 a crown for leading the flock to flourishing. Revelation 3 verse 11 warns churches not to let false teaching steal your crown. We need to help each other, keep our eyes on the majesty of Christ, hold each other accountable, use, find your role in the church to use your skills and your own knowledge to help build up this garden of life as a bold declaration of Christ's dominion here in Rochester. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, he's saying, who can be a leader in the church? Because you want to get the church in right order so that it can be a pillar and buttress of the truth. Just like verse 2 has said, we need to be those babies and infants who out of our mouths proclaim Christ's impenetrable defense against Satan's schemes in this city. And then humbled and strengthened by God's majesty displayed each week, every Sunday. Now every family can go out from here and properly tend your own gardens. Paul explains to the Corinthians and the Ephesians and the Colossians that there's an order that he wants established for his majesty to be on display in your home. A husband to be the head of the home, responsible for defining the mission, equipping the family to do the work, and defending that family from the enemy. And wives should submit. Not as doormats, not as tools to be used and tossed aside, but Proverbs 12 verse 4 calls wives the crown of glory. Same thing. It's not shameful It's not restricting to submit to a husband. It's a glory. Just as God empowers all of humanity with a crown to rule over this world, husbands have a crown in their wives to rule over the home, to have dominion over the home, to create life in it, and then expand it out into the unsubdued places outside of the home. Nobody is saying that wives should never leave the home, but they should start at home. Another example, 65 years after our nation's independence, a Frenchman named Alexis de Tocqueville traveled around America for nine months. Europeans were just marveling at how the United States became so prosperous and free, unlike any nation in history. And then he returned home and wrote a 1,000-page book explaining all the things he learned that made America prosper. But there were two things that stood out in particular. First, he noted that devout Christian morality permeated the culture, establishing proper order in society that promoted flourishing in everything. They just brought their faith everywhere with them. But at the end of his book, his very long book, he summarizes it all. He says this, If I were asked... Now that I am drawing to the close of this work, this work in which I have spoken of so many important things done by the Americans, if I were asked to what the singular prosperity and growing strength of that people ought mainly to be attributed, what is the one thing that has promoted flourishing in America more than anything else? He says, my reply would be the superiority of their women. He was amazed That America's women were strong, they were brilliant, intelligent, industrious, virtuous. And they focused those gifts, getting behind their men, gladly taking on the role of Eve as the helper. These women were capable of anything, but they ordered themselves according to God's design to rule well from their homes. And from there, they changed the world. None of this is to say that work outside of the church or outside of the home is not important. We're just saying put things in order. Adam and Eve were tasked with building and protecting the garden and then expanding its borders. We tend to our own life, our own homes, our own church, and then we go out sent by Jesus to bring that life-giving dominion into the unsubdued places around the world, trying to bring the same garden life into those places. Search the scriptures like gazing at the stars. Marvel at God's cosmic beauty set before us. Let it humble you and fit you in your right place in his created order under the majesty of Christ. And then realized he has lifted you up in his resurrection to give you dominion. Which place has he called you to rule over? Whatever it is, rule well with the authority given to you. Work unto the Lord as an opportunity to show how joyful it is to submit to Christ and how fruitful it is to expand his dominion into the world. And with these crowns he gives us, one day when he returns... We're going to walk up to his throne as Revelation 4 verse 10 says. We're going to bow down and take off our thrones and throw them at his feet. Proclaiming that all the dominion he gave us was for the purpose of turning it right back for the praise of his majesty in all the earth. Let's pray for God's help. God, what an enormous task you have called us to. How majestic is your name to be in all the earth. We're thankful that you have revealed your majesty to us here in Christ, in your word, in your spirit, working in one another, in these families, in these men and women, boys and girls, going out to display your majesty everywhere they go. Pray, God, that you would sanctify us more and more, humble us more, empower us more by your spirit Send legions of mighty angels to come by our side and win the battles of sin and temptation. That Christ would be on display in this city, in this county, in our state, in this nation, and all around the world. Make it so, King Jesus, for the fame of your name. Amen.